this is kind of fun, but I'm, I'm sort of intimidated by you guys. You're kind of smart and you know a lot of things already, so we'll see how this goes. I wanted to give you just a few thoughts on depression before I look at some of the text, though, on this. This comes from 35 years of doing this professionally, so I've talked to a lot of depressed people over the course of time. And so I've got 10 thoughts. This isn't on your notes, but if you want to pretend that you're a student and take notes, that would be okay. So here we go. A lot of times it is biochemical. I mean, it's beyond our control. We can't just think ourselves out of it or give ourselves a, a pep talk. And that's why medication can help. Of course, I know a lot of people that they don't want to take medication. They're afraid of being addicted to it, right? Becoming too dependent upon it. But in this world of modern medicine, they're beginning to biologically match the right medications where it's not just trial and error like it used to be. It's getting more sophisticated. So don't get turned off by the idea of, of being on medication for a short period of time. What I know is that we are a gestalt. I mean, our body affects our mind, our mind affects our body, and sometimes there is a biochemical deficiency there, though. But just back to this idea that you can be a great person of God and be depressed. On Friday, I had to hospitalize a young man facilitated with that, and he is as disciplined a Christian as I know. I mean, daily Bible reading and prayer, but he also suffers from bipolar disorder. And when he and his, uh, some of his family came in with him on Friday, I mean, he's having grandiosity. He's thinking that he's already graduated from the university and that we want to make him a professor there. Uh, well, that's not quite true. I mean, it kind of goes with this bipolar disorder and just some other things like paranoia. So if I said to him, snap out of it, or faithful people don't get depressed, of course that's not true in his case. So I hopefully he ended up at the hospital and is getting the treatment he needs. So, so first, there's a biochemical basis, can be, not always. Number two, people can help us or hurt us. We're affected by other people. And a lot of times, it's what we did not get from other people that have set us up for depression in adult years. We didn't get what we needed emotionally. So many times that goes back to early family issues. I'm a big proponent for the idea that if we didn't get what we needed before the age of 12, it can have significant impact even into our adult years. Have you ever heard this phrase or saying, by the crowd they are broken, by the crowd they are healed? A famous French philosopher who I forget his name right offhand, but we're broken by the crowd, we're broken by people, but it also says we can be healed by people. Just what we get from folks. That's why family and friends are so important, and that's why the church as a family is so important, where it's not just in name, but you really feel connected to at least some small group of people. Next, 
Your worldview is very important to whether you're going to get depressed or not. And like I'm saying, that develops very early, and it's almost learned by osmosis. It's just the atmosphere that you experience growing up. I remember an experience, I think I was about five years old, and I grew up on a little farm right off of Nolensville Road, not actually far from here, almost on the county line, and somehow our father had just died, I remember that, and it seemed like we were cheated out of some money. We were selling property to move to Madison, and it seemed like we were swindled out of some money or something, and I just re remember my mother saying something like, God is with us, he'll take care of us. And that's been my worldview. That's the atmosphere I grew up in. It doesn't matter. God is with us. He'll take care of us. And that was reinforced in school and at church. And so that's really my worldview. But a lot of people don't have that worldview. It's like they don't trust. You remember the great psychologist Eric Erickson say, says we learn to trust or distrust by the age of two. We're developing those type of feelings. <laughs> So if you have a negative worldview, that's going to be difficult to overcome. You really have to do some digging on that one. Next, our thoughts come from our worldview. So if I'm driving in traffic and someone cuts me off, I'll have a thought very quickly. And it might be, oh, that person is having a bad day. That might be it. Or it might be that jackrabbit or whatever. Uh, so, but my thought springs from something deeper inside me, which is the worldview that I carry inside of me. Like, it's okay, or it's not okay. But... Our thoughts come first, and then next, our next point, our emotions follow our thoughts. So if I'm saying to myself, oh, he must be having a bad day, I mean, I'm a lot calmer than if I'm saying to myself, that jackrabbit, I'm not going to let him in traffic. Feelings follow thoughts in my view of the world. But actually, there's some hope when we talk about that because we can work on changing our thoughts and subsequently changing our feelings. Sometimes, here's the next point, we have to battle our thought life. We have to replace those thoughts with something more logical and even more true. Sometimes we can do that by ourselves. Sometimes it takes someone else helping us with that process to learn to rethink things. They call it reframing, reframing situations in our mind so it doesn't produce the anger or the frustration or the depression there. Which leads me to my next point. Don't let other people control your mood. I like to think of it, are you a thermometer or a thermostat. A thermostat sets the temperature in the room and it kind of brings it to that temperature. A thermometer just reflects whatever is going on around it. Which would you rather be? 
a thermostat. You're set. So a person can act weird and you're okay. I mean, they might say something hurtful. You're okay. You're a thermostat. Does that help? That, ha that helps me a lot. Um, don't let other people control your mood. Be a thermostat and not a thermometer. And by the way, I realize I'm talking fast here. If you want to say anything, or please do. Thoughts so far? We, we did get into some CBT things like you're talking about in the first week or two. So they know about this. That. Yeah. You're being reinforced. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Let's see. Next, I've lost my numbers. Live in the moment. That helps a lot with depression. There's a lot of talk about mindfulness. And by the way, I wish I could come to all these classes, <laughs> but I can't. I've got responsibilities at my church. But there's a lot of talk in the world of psychology now about mindfulness, which just means living in the moment. You know, Jesus would say, live in the moment and don't be troubled by the past or the future. And that has to be practiced. Last night, I practiced it. I went walking at Hendersonville High School track. I live in Hendersonville. And I said, okay, I'm not going to worry about anything in the past, no guilt. I'm not going to be thinking about Otter Creek, no worry, no anxiety. I'm living in the moment. I'm just going to feel the breeze, strong breeze when I was out last <laughs> evening before the storms came in, but I was out there. I felt the, I felt the mus muscle tension. I felt my my ankles and my knees aching. I mean, I felt it all, but I thought, I'm just going to feel it. I'm going to live in the moment, not in the past, not in the future. Yeah, right now. That helps a lot when it comes to dealing with any type of depression. And here's, here's my biggie. I think this is number 10. We have God's power to help us. Isn't that what the gospel is all about? I mean, the Old Testament and New Testament. God can help. I mean, we're not really on our own when it comes to any of this. So I believe in the power of God's Spirit. I don't think He takes away all the baggage from the past. He doesn't, does He? But He gives us resources to help us deal with it. And He gives us people to help us deal with it. So before I get to these stories... Someone shared in class on Thursday night, this group therapy class I teach, this poem. It's about a two-minute poem. And I want you to listen to this and, and think, what part resonates with me the most? And I'll give you an opportunity to respond to this. It's entitled, Where is the Key? Have any of you heard this? I see your smile. I hear your laughter. You look happy, you look joyful, but I see your soul dripping with tears. Different faces for different places. A clever disguise. We all wear a clever disguise to conceal our lies. Quick and easy smiles to hide the existential pain. Take me to a beautiful place where I can show you my true face. Let us dance in the midnight summer's rain to wash away this life of pain. In and out of love, 
crying with joy, crying in sadness, holding hands with love, clenched fists with anger, a kiss filled with passion, a kiss of death, words of love, words of hate. We all mean something to somebody. But what do we mean to ourselves? We feel love from others, but do we feel the love for ourselves? I don't want to die. I want to live. The longer I live, the more pain I feel. I don't want to live. I don't want to die. I want to feel alive. But to feel alive, I must feel pain. What would you do if you saw angels crying in the sky? Would you lift up your arms and beg they take you? We accept our fates, we accept our truths, we accept our pain, we accept our lies, and continue further into our own darkness. A thousand roads to drive, a thousand rivers to swim, an endless sky to fly, an endless ocean to sail, but we hide in the shadows and cry. Last stanza. We have the key for happiness, but we let others hold that key. There's a Garden of Eden for all of us, but we choose not to enter. And we let others guard the gate, holding the key. The end. So what part of that resonated for you? That part resonated the most with me, too. We let others hold the key when we need to be holding our own keys. Would you say that that could be a, a, a product of rearing or upbringing? Because I know some people have been taught to be that way in certain situations. I think we're taught to people-please in the Christian tradition and to sacrifice ourselves extremely the point of not being good to ourselves. No self-care. No self-care. George? You mentioned in your list that uh, sometimes your family of origin issues before you're 12 can affect this. Uh, can you give some examples of what you're talking about there? And what if we have kids that are depressed? Are we at fault? No. <laughs> no. I mean, people end up making their own decisions regardless. And what, what's amazed me are the people who have had very adverse circumstances before 12, early on in life, and they cling to God so desperately in order to make them, their lives better. I see that too. But sometimes people have to reach that desperation point where they will do that, like God is all I have and I'm clinging to Him. But what the research says, if you've had losses particularly by death, or other significant losses by the age of 12, it sets you up for adult depression. That's the main one I'm thinking about. 
There's one young lady I have in mind right now who is horribly abused sexually. I saw her on Friday too as a, as a child and just gave up on life. Like why even fight it? And it got to the point, you know, she let others take advantage of her repeatedly. But then somehow she got connected with the church and they, they said, hey, there's another way. You know, God is there. And so she's one, she's clinging to God desperately in spite of all the stuff, horrible stuff that happened to her. And her life is turning around. I see that. But it's hard to overcome. Yes? Um, well, I was thinking like this, as the, again, the people can help us or hurt us um, as a family. Um, like say, you have two siblings that grow up the same parents, but one gets suppressed and the other one doesn't. And so, how you know that's not necessarily. I wonder, how, you know, how that. Obviously, it's not exactly the same. Not exactly but, the same, but same traumatic or yeah, yeah. And it could be, it could be just personality differences from birth. I mean, there are some children that are born more adaptable. There are some that are born more excitable. There are some that are born more capable to soothe themselves. So it could be just how we're born. There's some of these things we have to overcome that kind of set us up for some of this too. It sounds like there's a lot of different variables. Exactly. In that situation because usually by the age of 12, people have created their uh, core values. They've got those solidified, which like I think we were kind of alluding to that. And that would also carry over to how you face adversity, how you face things that come into life when life happens. I mean, for me, for instance, by the age of 12, I had two major deaths, a close aunt and my grandmother. So after that, I had issues with going to funerals. And I, I ain't gonna lie, right now, being a, a minister, I still, and my family have to do a lot of these eulogies. And I still have issues. I did my father's eulogy. And to this day, I don't remember what I said. Because something about funerals still mess with, messes with me. And in the last year, I've had to eulogize an <coughs> uncle and two close aunts. So, yeah, I understand what you're talking about. It's like it'll create something within your mind if you're kind of adaptable or however, something to protect you. Like with me, after I do them, I don't remember them. And I, like I have one on to this very day, I can't remember her dying. You've been, able, you've been able to block things out. Right. Either I mean, not intentionally, right. but just painful things block things out. There's one theory out there that when we have stressful things, we either move toward it, move against it, or move away from it. And I think I'm a move away from it type of person. I, but I notice my little grandson, he will run to you if you're scaring him or something. He thinks he can win you over to not scare him anymore. And that's good, I think. I'm the type I'd run away. I mean, I'm not running toward the scary source. but. He's already learned to do that, and I think that's going to serve him well. But, but he's not running against me. He's not running up to punch me. He's just kind of running up to, yeah, embrace me, for I can embrace him to kind of win me over. So that's good. Okay, all this is good. Also yeah. Genetics. It's not always just environmental. No. I mean, we have a family history, no. so it's not just genetics. It's not just... I mean, it's not just Right. Genetics makes it very hard to go, I'm going to change my thought process. Yes. And that's, 
and Terry could say a lot about this too, I'm sure, and, and several of you on this, but you know, how do you, how do you ferret out nurture nature? And most of the researchers, are, you know, they try to figure these things out, but how can you? A lot of times it just comes down to 50-50, you know, combination. And someone told me Wednesday night, it's not just nature-nurture, but it's also, and we live in cert, such a culture now of intensity that that adds to it too. I mean, that's part of the, of the nurture around you, but, I mean, we, we, culture certainly dictates growing up in the South has affected me, you know, to be a Southern gentleman, hopefully. I mean, culture plays a part. I guess all of that's surrounding us. Well, anyway, I better get to the topic at hand, should I not? Let's look at these characters, and I think you know the stories, and I, um, but so pitch in here. I don't think I have time to, to read the stories, but let's look at Moses. This is in Numbers chapter 11, and... Uh, I'll kind of highlight or maybe I'll read a little bit of this, but this is what I want you to think about. How did the depression show itself in Moses? What caused the depression? And then God's solution to this. And as we look at these different characters, we'll find out there's a different quote-unquote solution in all of these different people, how God played a part in bringing about help. To me, that's fascinating. There's just not one answer all of this, in other words. But here we go. Numbers 11, 10 through 18. I'll read part of it. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance of the tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. So what is he feeling? He's feeling troubled. That's how the depression is showing itself. The cause of it, he's feeling overwhelmed. I mean, he's got these two million Israelites following him around, and he's the leader. He's feeling overwhelmed. So anybody ever feel overwhelmed? I mean, I think all of us can relate to this one. Is, it, is life going to slow down as it goes forward? I don't think so. We live in the world of constant stimulation, and that's not going to change easy to feel overwhelmed here. Well, do you remember what God's solution was for this? You can look ahead in the story, but some of you know this. Yes, delegated authority. Yes, he found helpers, and God is the one who suggested that. He found him helpers. So it's revolving around, you need a support group. You need a support group where you don't have to wear one of those faces that I read about in that little poem, where you can just be you. But even though we live in this world of intense social media, do you have a real buddy or two or three? I don't think you need 12. Just a few will do you good. The young, the family I was talking to on Friday with the man that was bipolar, his wife was in the room with me, and I said, do you have any friends that can help you right now? And she said, no, there's nobody. And I thought, well, shoot, I wish I could help. I wish I could do this and do that. But a lot of people don't have this, and that's what the church is supposed to be, supposed to be. So God's solution, God gave him help, a support group, people, 
And he also answered the prayer by giving him meat to eat. He took care of himself by eating. We kind of need to eat. All right. David. This is 2 Samuel 12. You know this story. This is when the little baby boy is about to die. And what is, how do you know that David is depressed in this story? Do you remember what he did? How do you know he was depressed? Exactly. He started mourning before the baby died. Actually, it was, he's reaching out to God. He's really begging God for the life of this child. So it's showing up. He's laying on the ground and he wouldn't eat. And people are afraid because they're thinking he's going to be suicidal here or he is suicidal. The cause of the depression was the illness and, the, and then the death of his child caused by him. He's responsible. This is punishment. Now, how would that feel? I can't even imagine that one. Don't want to imagine that one. But then, what was his response? And this is the amazing part to me. He gets up and he starts worshiping God in spite of all that's happened. So he's turning to God. That is God's solution. That is ingrained, what Dr. Angus is saying, that's ingrained enough in him from childhood. He turns to God in spite of the death of his child just immediately. And he took care of himself, washed Bathed. And do you remember what he said about the afterlife? Basically, I believe in it. He said, he's not going to come to me talking about his child, but I will go to him. So that's God's solution. This is, I'm preaching here, <laughs> but this is, this, is not, this is not all there is to our life. I mean, I believe that. There's an eternity beyond this. And I hold on to that when I think, okay, life here is kind of crummy at times, but guess what? My life here is not going to be that long, and then there's an eternity. That's what our Christian life gives us, our faith. He holds, he's holding on to that. Thoughts on that? What else do you see in, in David's example? He didn't let the people. He didn't let the people dictate how he was going to mourn, or how he would should mourn. They were thinking, "Why are you mourning now? Everything's still good." You know, they didn't understand his thought process, but he didn't let how they perceived it to change what he was trying to do. Excellent point. And this is one thing you probably know already. Everybody mourns differently. They really do. I had one lady. After the death of her father, she would take a sleeping bag out to the graveyard and lay on his grave at night, and that's where she slept. That was helpful to her. Other people would say, you're a little crazy lady, but that's how she did it. And so let's not cast judgments on that. Yes? David, I think back about his whole life. My goodness. Living in caves and being wrongfully pursued, and what, what's going on? How come? I mean, he was he was familiar with depression, I'm guessing. 
this wasn't the first time. I mean, that could vice versa. Right. What I mean is during his life, he had different times where I think Excellent he point. A whole life filled with losses and unfairness and death. It mainly hit him after he came out of the pasture. After he came out of the pasture and came to the house, life changed. That all hit his head. That life changed for him. Because think yeah. about it. He was happy and go lucky killing bears and stuff out there with your sheep and playing songs under the tree. And then you just get told, oh, by the way, you're about to be king. Life changed for him after that. Very dramatically, yeah. But he was prepared. Mm -hmm. He was prepared for whatever happened in life. Amazingly so, even when he was the guilty party. Yeah. All right. Keep moving. Elijah. This is in 1 Kings chapter 19. All right. This is the story when Jezebel is after him. Now, he just had had this wonderful experience when he confronted the prophets of Baal and really won the battle. I mean, God won the battle. So he should have been at a spiritual high, which is going to be another point. Yes, I'm watching the time too. Another point, a lot of times when we're at a spiritual high, a loaf does follow. It seems like Satan does attack. I've noticed that in my own life too. But a spiritual high. But then he's afraid of Jezebel. She makes a threat, and he starts running for his life. So he's afraid. That is how it's showing up in his life, and he's praying for death. The cause of the depression is fear. He's feeling alone in all of this. And how does God work to bring about a solution? There's a divine intervention. An angel comes and brings him comfort and actually prepares him food. And you remember the story, God reveals himself in that still little voice. Is that the story? God reveals himself and basically says, you need more help too. I may have got my stories confused on that one. But God reveals himself to him and says, you need more help. And like he gets Elisha to become his helper. Really, he puts the mantle on Elisha. But God reveals Himself. That's what I wanted to share with you. When you're at a low point, God can intervene and reveal Himself. And a lot of times it takes the low point for you to reach out or for me to reach out to God that strongly. Happy-go-lucky life doesn't make you reach out for God. Depression can and does. I did get the story point, right. Still small voice. Yes, yes go ahead.
I'm here this way, but I'm also here this way, and this way is what you need to pay attention to. Ooh, well said. Yeah. God will reveal himself when we reach out to him. I have confidence in that, and that shows in this story. All right, two more. Jonah, you know the story well, but the part I'm getting to is in Jonah chapter 3, and Jonah wanted the people of Nineveh to be punished, if you remember the story. And he's angry at God for not punishing the people. Isn't that odd? He's a preacher, and I want him hurt, God. Now, I think it gets to when God violates our expectations of what's right and fair, that can cause depression. I like to say it's our expectations that can get us into trouble. We think it had, we have it laid out about what God is going to do, and there's a shift, and it bothers us. And that's what's happening to him. So, how does it show itself? He wants to die, and then God's solution to that is a really an odd example. He causes this leafy vine to grow up to provide him protection from the, from the sun, but really even that's just an object lesson because then God causes that leaf to wither and die, and he thinks that's unfair too. But God is trying to teach him, you know, I am sovereign. I am sovereign. I will let it play out according to what my will would be. There's a little chastisement in that, a little instruction. Sometimes we need that from God, a little instruction and a little... Nope, not going down the right path there. A lot of that. Well, exactly, he needs a lot of that. Yeah. More than most, like being swallowed by the whale, yes. Okay, last story, and I'll a couple minutes here. Hannah. Now, this, this is tragic. Here she is, a lady, no children, and she's crying. She wouldn't eat. And the scriptures say this go, goes on for year after year. She's struggling. Where is my precious child that I want to have? It does not happen. Again, a violation of her expectations. Life is not fair. And then add to it that other wife, Paniah, Penny, Paniah, who is taunting her. And so there's a jealousy that develops here. So she's got all of that going on. And do you remember what she does? She prays to God. God's solution is what? Yeah, giving her the son, little Samuel. So does God intervene to help us? Yes. Yes. I mean, according to his will, yes. Maybe not exactly what we're wanting, but what we're needing, I totally am convinced of that. So, I'll close. Here it is. Godly people struggle, but God is still right there with us, and He will give us what we need. The feelings may not go away, but we can count on God's presence. You know something, Dr. Scott? In my research, when I did it, I did what you talking about stress and stuff with African-American ministers. I talked to some men who had some very adverse situations, even to the point where one guy, they were cutting his heat off, bouncing checks on him, rolling U-Hauls up to his house to move him out. And the question was asked, did you ever think about quitting? 
and majority of my people that I talked to would always say, I could not give up on God. Meaning that their faith is what held them in these bad situations. They wouldn't let go. They would pull closer to him in these situations or even when they were still experiencing things that was like burnout. They would cling closer. That's what kept them going. I found that to be very intriguing. That's the answer. Cling closer. This is a topic we do yeah. so much on. Uh, but 